When you see an all-timer I've been reflecting since memory tent on my pathfinder Quick reminder, never side with a sidewinder Hello and welcome to the Rational Black Thought Podcast I'm your host Mike Cheatham and this is episode number 31 And the theme of the podcast this week is a question why is misinformation so prolific in America? So uh, we'll go through the agenda quickly before we get started. First of all, we will uh, discuss feedback on the podcast. After feedback, we'll go through the segment, What's on My Mind? And that is the same as the uh, theme of the podcast. Why is misinformation so prolific in America? After we go through that segment or finish that segment, we'll do the news the stories in the news this week that I want to talk about are the fact that a federal grand jury has indicted four ex-officers in the murder of uh, George Floyd. Also, the GOP doubles down on supporting Trump, democracy be damned. And uh, next, we'll talk about the fact that uh, the family of uh, Tamir Rice is still seeking justice, and uh, we'll get into some details on what that's about. If you don't remember, uh, Tamir Rice will talk about it during that news segment. Also, uh, after that, we'll talk about the fact that a um, church uh, is not surprised after their pastor is arrested for trying to steal a scooter. And after that news story, we'll give a quick update on the coronavirus. And after that, the last story will be uh, the fact that a cult leader's mummified body was found wrapped in Christmas lights in a Colorado home. So I know that sounds batshit crazy, and it is, but uh, we'll talk about exactly what happened there. That'll be it for the news, and then we'll go through the segment that I call This Shit Is For Us. And what I want to talk about this week is uh, the Civil War 2.0. Um, and essentially what I want to talk about is, in my opinion, we are already uh, in a civil war or a race war, and um, I'll talk about what I mean by that. After that, we'll do Bible study with Atheist Mike, and this is the long version, so this is the monthly version um, this week. And what I'm going to talk about with Bible study is not really a Bible study. I'm going to review some preliminary content for a book that I've been uh, thinking of writing. 
Uh, and the title of the book is going to be The Religious Significance of Hats. And the subtitle was going to be in other stupid shit related to clothing and religion. So we'll talk about that for the Bible study second uh, segment. Then in closing, I want to uh, give a shout out to and review the story of uh, two um, uh, identical twins, uh, black identical twins, uh, that together scored more than $24 million in scholarships. So I think that that's a great um, inspiring story and can't wait to get to it. So with that being our agenda for the week, we'll take a break. And when we come back, we'll review listener feedback. Welcome back. So uh, for feedback this week, um, again, I the only individual that I talked to was James. So he was the only listener that reached out. And this week, uh, James uh, pointed out that I made a mistake uh, and a mispronunciation last week. And I appreciate receiving the corrections, but I think that everyone who heard it knew that it was just a misstatement. So uh, I had said last week that uh, in talking about Trump and his comments about uh, African countries, I said instead of African countries, African-American countries. Uh, but I do know that um, uh, it's not African-American countries, unless you count Liberia, which, of course, um, is debatable. But in any case, that was a misstatement. Uh, and um, I apologize for making that error. James also provided a link uh, to a pastor giving a sermon or a talk on the women in Jesus's life. Uh, James indicated that the message, um, he didn't see how the uh, Christians continued to let this person be a, a pastor of a church, uh, and he thought that it was very funny. Um, I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. Uh, it was a very long week, and I just didn't get a chance to get to it, but uh, I will, and once I am able to review that, I will provide uh, feedback and an update on what I thought about it um, on, a, on a future podcast. So anyway, James is back. Uh, he did contact me earlier looking for uh, this week's version of uh, The Rational Black Thought, and I had to remind him that um, the segment does uh, only come out on Saturday. So I'm recording this on Friday. Uh, but uh, every week I record on Friday and release it uh, as of uh, Saturday morning. So um, that's all the feedback uh, for this week. Um, if you would like to provide feedback, uh, please uh, send me an email. And you can send that email to feedback at rationalblackthought.com. Again, the email to provide feedback is feedback at rationalblackthought.com. All right, we'll take another break, and uh, when we get back, we'll go over the segment, What's on My Mind. Okay, welcome back. 
So as I had mentioned in the in, intro, um, what I want to talk about this week uh, in this week's segment of What's on My Mind is answering the question, why is mis misinformation so prolific in America? And uh, as usual, I did find an article that um, uh, I think provides good information on the topic. And so I will go through some excerpts from that article and then provide my commentary. And the, the article was titled, Belonging is Stronger Than Facts. And this, it had uh, uh, colon, the age of misinformation. So let's just uh, get to it. So the article reads, there's a decent chance that you've heard at least one of these rumors, all false, relayed to you as facts recently. That President Biden plans to force Americans to eat less meat. That Virginia is eliminating advanced math in schools to advance racial equality. And that border officials are mass purchasing copies of Vice President Kamala Harris's book to hand out to refugee children. All were amplified by partisan actors. But you are just as likely, if not more so, to have heard it relayed from someone you know. And you may have noticed that these cycles of falsehood fueled outrage, uh, out of falsehood fueled outrage keep reoccurring. We are in an era of endemic misinformation and outright disinformation. Plenty of bad actors are helping the trend along, but the real drivers, some experts believe, are social and psychological forces that make people prone to sharing and believing misinformation in the first place. And those forces are on the rise. The, the article quotes um, uh, Brendan Nyan uh, saying, quote, why are misperceptions about contentious issues in politics and science so seemingly persistent and difficult to correct? And uh, uh, Bren Brendan is a, uh, a, a professor at uh, Dartmouth College uh, of uh, Political Science. And he posed that question in a paper in Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. It's not for one of good information, which is ubiquitous. Exposure to good information does not reliably, reliably instill accurate beliefs anyway. Rather, Dr. Nyan writes, a growing body of evidence suggests that the ultimate culprits are cognitive and memory limitations, directional motivations to defend or support some group identity or existing belief, and messages from other people and political elites. So, put more simply, people become more prone to misinformation when three things happen. First, and perhaps most important, is when conditions in society make people feel a greater need for what social scientists call in-grouping. That is, a belief that their social identity is a source of strength and superiority, and that other groups can be blamed for their problems. And the article doesn't say this, but um, uh, as I have said in the past, I think that Trump used the same uh, uh, blueprint that Hitler used uh, in doing that exact thing, thing. That is to identify the other that was the cause of all the problems and to make sure that uh, the the group that he was supporting or seeking support from uh, knew that he was against uh, all of the other groups. Uh, 
But the article goes on to say, as much as we like to think of ourselves as rational beings, which I like to think of myself as rational, but and a lot of other people that I know, but I also know a lot of people that are irrational. Uh, but again, the article says we like to think of ourselves as rational beings who put truth seeking above all else. I don't believe that most people even think that. But we are social animals, the article says, wired for survival. In times of perceived conflict or social change, we seek security in groups, and that makes us eager to consume information, true or not, that lets us see the world as a conflict putting our righteous in-group against a nefarious out-group. And again, in my opinion, that's what Hitler did, that's what Trump did, and uh, Trump's influence is still being felt uh, today. This need can emerge especially out of a sense of social destabilization, the article goes on to say. As a result, misinformation is often prevalent among communities that feel destabilized by unwanted change or in the case of some minorities, powerless in the face of dominant forces. Um, actually, I think that what we're experiencing today is more uh, the, the first part, which is a, a feeling of loss of privilege uh, by uh, certain members of the white uh, community uh, who are doubling down on every single bit of misinformation to try and say that that loss of privilege is, in fact, an attack uh, against them and their values. The article goes on to say, framing everything as a grand conflict against scheming enemies can feel enormously reassuring. And that's why perhaps the greatest culprit of our era of misinformation may be, more than any one particular misinformer, the era, the era defining social uh, arise in social polarization. Growing hostility between the two halves of America feeds social distrust. And uh, I, I would think I'm not exactly sure what the author of this article means by the two halves, but I would say that uh, one overarching theme is black and white. Of course, there's also uh, Democrat and Republican. There's have and have nots, et cetera, et cetera. But it goes on to say that social distrust, which makes people more prone to rumor and falsehood, um, it is, uh, the, is what is causing this growing hostility. Uh, it also makes people cling much more tightly to their partisan identities. And once our brains switch into identity-based conflict mode, uh, we become desperately hungry for information that will affirm the sense of us versus them, much less concerned about things like truth or accuracy. Now, I, I don't think that that is the case for all of us. I, I tend to, as I have said on a, in a prior uh, podcast, to disbelieve almost anything, especially if I find it to be uh, somewhat outrageous, even if it uh, corresponds to beliefs that I already hold. As an example, if I had heard, uh, if I read something that Trump has done or said, if it's really outrageous, uh, I would have a tendency not to believe it, uh, even though I think that he is uh, a, uh, for lack of a better word, evil person, and therefore nothing uh, would surprise me uh, that he said or did that was that was negative. But um, I, I just wouldn't 
jump to the conclusion that some outrageous comment, uh, say, for instance, if he uh, if he said that he killed some uh, black person in the past for uh, insulting uh, his girlfriend or something like that, I wouldn't believe it. So the the article goes on to say the second driver of misinformation uh, of the misinformation era, rather, is the emergence of a high profile political of high profile political figures who encourage their followers to indulge their desire for identity affirming misinformation. After all, an atmosphere of all out political conflict often benefits those leaders at least in the short term, by rallying people behind them. And we, we're certainly seeing that now. And one of the news articles that I'm going to go on is going to delve into that a bit deeper. But what we see right now, as an example, and I've talked about this before, is that the Republican Party is no longer a political party. It is a cult of personality that is worshiping a single individual uh, in the name of Donald John Trump. Uh, and they will do anything, uh, anything at all in order to prove their allegiance to him, uh, and thereby to maintain the power or regain the power that they think they have or that they think they lost. Now, the article goes on to say that there is a third factor, which is a shift to social media, which is a powerful outlet for composers of disinformation a pervasive vector of misinformation itself, and a multiplier of other risk factors. And certainly we see that that is true, and we can we can see that definitively uh, by the fact that when Facebook banned Donald Trump uh, from its platform, um, the amount of disinformation dropped significantly uh and uh, has continued to uh stay lower than it was uh when he was uh when when he was on the platform uh that and twitter so anyway um as you may know and this not this isn't one of the stories that I'm going to go through this week in the news uh but uh, the but facebook's um independent board um, uh, their review board, uh, upheld the suspension of Donald Trump, but, um, they had a lot of nonsensical, uh, information in affirming that, that makes it appear that that may not be permanent. So unfortunately, who knows, we will maybe see in the, unfortunately, the near future, Donald Trump back uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, spewing the fucking lies that he's been spewing from the very beginning. Now, that's the end of this article, and I, I certainly believe that the factors that were outlined here, uh, especially the ones related to individuals uh, feeling a need to associate with an in-group and to dichotomize others in the form of the other, uh, is one of the critical factors of why any misinformation now is sucked up and believed. So individuals like the whole Q nut job motherfuckers can start saying shit like, uh, Hillary Clinton is the head of a, uh, baby raping and baby eating, uh, cannibalistic cabal, uh, that is operating in the basement of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. And you get a bunch of mother ignorant ass motherfuckers that believe that shit. 
and just on the surface, you would say, how could anybody believe that? But they believe it because they are willfully ignorant and trying to search that out to say that they are on the side of good and everybody that is against them is on the side of evil. Now, Claire Graves, a uh, social scientist, developed a model of human behavior called spiral dynamics that I think provides some clarity on what we're seeing. Uh, Graves listed eight levels that he said defines human uh, behavior. And according to Graves, we cannot get to one of the higher levels uh, without going through uh, one of the lower levels. Uh, and he's also said that it is possible for both individuals and groups to uh, progress through these levels, but to also devolve uh, to a lower level after reaching a higher one. And so I just want to go through some of the, these or these levels, not all of the, not all eight, uh, but I'll go through some of them and uh, talk about um, uh, the attributes of each of the levels. So, and these are color coded um, uh, to make it a bit easier. So the, the lowest level is beige, and that is considered the state of nature and biological urges and drives. Uh, physical senses uh, dictate the state of being. Uh, and the mechanism for coping at the beige level is instinctive as natural instincts and inflective, uh, reflexive, di direct, autotomic responses or experiences. So this is basically uh, at a, uh, a sub-animalistic level. So this is just pure um pure uh, nature and and that's it so at, at the at the greatest level it would be nearing animalistic but not quite so the the next level is purple and this one the attributes or life conditions or the physical world and realm of spirit beings overlap uh collaborate uh, for safety and survival Ancestral ancestral ways, customs, and kinship offer answers. So this is kind of the 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 level of um, uh, like uh, the the Greeks in a way, because this, these were individuals who believed in 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 gods and spirits uh, and and all of that. And the coping mechanism is animalistic, uh, since life force is uh, in most things live according to tradition and ritual ways of group, tribe, or the clan, and harmonize with nature. Now, I, some of the attributes, of course, of these uh, of these levels, even though they are considered to be the lower levels, are fine. So harmonizing with nature, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and I think that that is something that we uh, should take with us into some of the higher levels as we pass through. Um, and certainly there's a certain instinctive component to all of us because uh, we are all uh, just animals um, uh, with a big brain. Um, uh, that is, humans are just animals with a big brain. So we're going to have some instinctive behavior as well. In fact, I am uh, currently taking a course on applied neuroscience, and I think that a lot of the things that I'm learning is that there is more of our behavior that is at that instinctual level, the beige level, than we sometimes like to think. But this next level is where I think the majority of um, the world is at today, and that's red. 
and the red level, the life conditions are uh, like a jungle where the tough and the strong prevail. The weak serve. Uh, nature is an adversary to be conquered. And the coping means are uh, egocentric assertion, uh, asserting self for dominance, conquer nature, and exploitive concern with shame, no guilt, impulsive, and immediate. Uh, and I think that that's a lot of what we're seeing. This, the, especially this, this, and the purple. Uh, level as it relates to clan and group um, and tribal uh, allegiances, like what I, we had talked about before with this in-group versus out-group. And then this whole warlike mentality that comes uh, out, of, uh, out of the red uh, level. And so I think that I think that society right now is moving between uh, the red level and then the blue. So let's get to the blue. The blue is controlled by obedience to a higher power that directs living, punishes wrongs, and eventually rewards good works and righteous living. Uh, and the coping means are uh, absolutistic. Obedience as a higher authority and rules uh, direct, uh, conforming to norm, feel guilt, search, uh, truth, meaning, and purpose. Uh, but again, uh, it is it is still based upon the 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 uh, uh, the norms that the group determines as to what is uh, the truth and what is uh, the the wanted by the higher power. So it isn't about some even generally universally agreed to uh, set of values, but it is one group saying that their values are truth and supported by God. Uh, and then the the everyone else is is on the side of some evil being like Satan. So uh, as I had mentioned, there were eight levels, and uh, we've gone through uh, just four of them. I'm not going to go through all of the others uh, in detail, but I will kind of review it quickly. Um, and so the next level is orange, uh, which is uh, the life conditions are uh, full of research to develop and uh, to develop to develop and opportunities to make things better and being uh, and bring prosperity for those um, with initiative and willingness to take risk. And the coping means there is uh, multipleistic, uh, act pragmatically and calculate uh, to get uh, desired results, maneuver through competition and comparison and its scientism. Uh, the next one is green and the share that's uh, the life conditions or the shared Habitat wherein humanity can find peace and purpose through affiliation and appreciating life's diversities. It's relativistic relevant, uh, um, empathy to feel um, and desire to respond to human needs, affiliative, uh, situational, consensual, and context aware. The next one is yellow, uh, which the life conditions are a chaotic organism with underlying order where change is the norm and uncertainty and acceptable state of being uh, as knowledge evolves. And the um, uh, coping means for yellow are uh, systematic, finds interconnections, layered clauses, learns con constantly, puts function over love, status, rules, or power. Uh, then there's turquoise, uh, which uh, the life conditions are a delicately balanced system of interlocking forces, 
in some jeopardy at humanity's hands in need of compassion and comprehension. Uh, the coping means are holistic, experiential learning, transpersonal living, collective consciousness, and refreshed awareness of energetic fields. And then uh, the last one is coral, uh, which the life conditions, they say it's too soon to say, but should uh, tend to be um, uh, kind of eye-oriented, uh, controlling, consolidating uh, if the pattern holds. And uh, the uh, coping means would be uh, next neurological capacities. The theory is open-ended uh, as to the limits of uh, what the homo sapien brain can achieve. So again, I wanted to just go through that briefly to say that um, there are social uh, reasons that we are seeing this uh, predisposition to misinformation uh, and the people uh, seeing so many people willing to buy into lies, uh, the big lie of the stolen election, uh, the bigger lies that have happened of uh, racial inferiority, uh, even though uh, race is a bio from a biological perspective is a myth anyway. So uh, I don't see this getting any better in the short term. Uh, I think we're solidly stuck in the in the lower uh, levels uh, of this spiral dynamic, which is what this model is called. Uh, and so we're going to be circling around beige, purple, and red with a little bit of blue uh, from my uh, from my mind, which means that we're going to continue to see people um, break up into groups and to awfulize others that are not pointed that part of that group and to continue to consume only the information that um, uh, puts them in the position of being right, justified, and uh, good. And anything that they, that is opposite of what they believe is considered to be uh, evil, uh, bad, and to be destroyed. So that's where we are. Um, it, it. I guess what the only thing that I would say from this is that this is why it is important for us, uh, those of us who want to be uh, rational and want to seek the truth and to want to uh, accurately comprehend reality to avoid misinformation. So even if it strongly triggers uh, a predetermined point of view for you, uh, if it, especially if it's a very, very, um, strong or bold piece of information, a game changer, so to speak, uh, I would say let's take a look at the underlying um, uh, details about that information and and validate its veracity before we uh, send it off in another tweet and or uh, an, another uh, Facebook post or whatever the fuck uh, we're doing at the time. So let's try to be... Uh, judicious with retweeting and reposting bullshit. Uh, let's try to validate and confirm any information that we receive and make sure it's true before we pass it on and make sure that we continue to deal with others uh, from the basis of rational thought and, uh, and reason. All right. Uh, so that's it uh, for this segment this week of what's on my mind. We'll take a break. And when we come back, we'll review the news. 
right, welcome back. So uh, quite a bit going on in the news this week, and uh, I did not go through all of the things that I found interesting, uh, just wouldn't have time for that. Uh, but let's get started. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is a federal grand jury has indicted four of the ex-officers uh, that were involved in the murder of George Floyd. So four former Minneapolis police officers were indicted on charges of violating the civil rights of George Floyd. Uh, and in case you don't remember, uh, which again, like I said before, last week, uh, where the fuck have you been? Uh, George Floyd was a black man uh, whose killing last year led to months of demonstration against police violence. The Justice Department uh, just uh, announced on Friday uh, that they were going to indict the four officers on federal charges as well. The indictment was uh, returned by a federal grand jury weeks after one of the officers, Derek Chauvin, was convicted of second-degree murder in the death of Mr. Floyd. Uh, the charges are another extraordinary censuring of law enforcement officials who rarely face criminal charges for using deadly force. The indictment uh, charges Mr. Chauvin uh, and other former Minneapolis Police Department officers, uh, Tao Thao, uh, Alexander Kung, and uh, Thomas Lane, with willfully depriving Mr. Floyd of his constitutional civil rights during the arrest. The indictment alleges that by holding his left knee across Mr. Floyd's neck and his right knee on his back and arm as he lay on the ground, handcuffed and unresisting, Mr. Chauvin used unconstitutional, unreasonable force that resulted in Mr. Floyd's death. Mr. Thao and Mr. Kung uh, are charged with willfully failing to stop Mr. Chauvin from using unreasonable force. All four defendants saw Mr. Floyd lying on the ground in need of medical care and willfully failed to aid him, depriving him of his constitutional right not to be deprived of liberty without due process of law, which included Mr. Floyd's right to be free from an officer's deliberate indifference to serious medical needs, the indictment said. A second indictment also charged Mr. Chauvin with uh, depriving a teenager of his civil rights during a September 2017 encounter in which the former officer is accused of holding the minor by the throat and striking his head multiple times with a flashlight. Now, you you might wonder, and this happened in 2017, and Chauvin was still around as a police officer in 2020 to kill George Floyd. So what the fuck? It's like, I mean, this is good news that they, that they were indicted, but let's not get sucked into thinking that all police misconduct, uh, misconduct is now going to be prosecuted. It remains to be seen if even these charges stick, and there's no guarantee that even if they do stick, that they will impact how other cases are handled. Uh, the police, as far as I can see by the news recently, are on a rampage of killing black men and women. And it doesn't seem like that is going to stop anytime soon. All right, let's go to the next story. And in this story, um, I just want to go through some things that are happening where it just proves that the GOP, the Republican Party, is doubling down on supporting Trump, and they don't give a fuck about our democracy at all. So 
Representative Elise Stanfinick uh, uh, stated her case Thursday for replacing Liz Cheney as a number three House Republican leader. Uh, implicitly lambasting uh, Cheney's battles with the former president, Donald Trump, by saying, quote, uh, this is uh, uh, Steph- Stefanik. Uh, she said, quote, we are one team and that means working with the president, end quote. Now, when she said working with the president, she wasn't talking about Joe Biden, who's the motherfucking president, you stupid bitch. She was talking about that nut job insurrectionist uh, ex-President Trump, who's uh, hopefully going to be uh, a present-day felon uh, before long. But this is what uh, Stefanik uh, had to say. Now, um, it, just in case you're not aware, I'll give a little bit of uh, the info uh, on this. So so um, Cheney, um, Liz Cheney, who is a fucking asshole Dick Cheney's daughter, um, basically came out and voted uh, to impeach uh, Donald Trump um, in the House when the House voted uh, on that. Uh, because of that, uh, she was uh, basically brought up before the uh, Republican House committee, uh, and they voted in secret, which she overwhelmingly was able to maintain her position as a number three uh, uh, Republican in the House of Representatives. Uh, which that happened a few months ago. Uh, but in the meantime, because she didn't uh, stop her rhetoric around uh, the fact that she believes that Trump, that, uh, and I said Trump, but I meant Trump, but those two things are synonymous, uh, that, that Trump was uh, responsible for the uh, attack on the Capitol on January the 6th because she hasn't change that. Now the Republican Party is set to go back and have another vote where the likelihood is that she is going to be kicked out. Now, as far as I am concerned, and, and you know, it's not just um, uh, 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 Stefanik that's doing this as well. Uh, just this week, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the, the, the fucking asshole motherfucker, uh, who who basically said that Trump was guilty and then sucked his dick just like uh, uh, McConnell did. Uh, he was caught on a supposed hot mic uh, this week saying that he had had it with Cheney and that more than likely she was going to be out. Now, I, I want to be clear. I don't give a fuck about Cheney at all. And, and I don't think uh, the fact that she is telling the truth as it relates to uh, there being no voter, massive voter fraud. And also the only uh, voter fraud that we've been able to identify are the fucking Republicans. I, I, I mean, she's right about that, but that doesn't, that doesn't absolve her from all of the other shit that she's done. She's been a racist Republican, just like all the rest of them for years. And the, the only difference now is that, she doesn't want to see the democracy destroyed, uh, which I give her that, 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 that is, that is a good thing. Uh, but I don't think, as I said again, that that absolves her from all of the other, uh, shit that she's done. She's certainly not, she's not voted for any of, uh, the, the, the bills in the house that would, would help, uh, America for voting rights and other things of that nature. Instead, she has rightfully 
chastise the fucker Trump, but um, uh, she's 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 not she that doesn't make her uh, someone uh, as an example that I would vote for. So um, uh, like Cheney called out a, a bunch of these nuts uh, uh, for who they really are. Like she said, McCarthy has changed his story, which he has. And she says, quote, after initially saying Trump bears responsibility for the January 6th attacks on the Capitol, uh, McCarthy is now tacitly back in the drive to oust her. Uh, and basically because uh, Trump uh, said that he needed to do so. And um, so not only has McCarthy changed his story, but so has most of the Republicans that came out against Trump um, uh, after the attempted coup. McConnell said that Trump definitely incited the riot, and now he says he would vote for Trump in 2024. Lindsey Graham said he was done and they could count him out. Uh, and now he sucks tr Trump's tiny little dick every chance he gets uh, by running off to Mar-a-Lago. So all these motherfuckers are amoral pieces of shit. Uh, and they need to shut the fuck up and uh, and get out of office. But um, I'm fearful that uh, that's not going to happen. And unfortunately, the opposite may happen. And we may they may gain ground in 2022 and in, in the House and in the Senate. And we may lose um, uh, that is. Black people and and an American general will lose if that happens. All right, let's go on to the next story. So the family of Tamir Rice is still seeking justice. And uh, if you don't remember, Tamir Rice uh, was a 12 year old boy who was shot and killed by Cleve uh, the Cleveland police in 2014. And the family this week has asked the Justice Department to reopen the case, which was closed during the Trump administration. So on November the 22nd, 2020 or 2014, rather, uh, Tamir was playing with a pellet gun outside a recreational center in Cleveland. A man drinking beer and waiting for a bus called 911 to report that a guy was pointing a gun at people. Now, the caller told the dispatcher that it was probably a juvenile and the gun might be fake. But authorities claimed that that information was never relayed to the officers. Now, I saw the video of this the motherfucking officer jumps out of the car with his gun and starts shooting almost immediately. So whether the information was relayed or not doesn't change the fact that they essentially assassinated this poor little boy. So Officer Timothy Loeman and Officer Frank um, uh, uh, Garmbach arrived at the scene and the 12 year old boy was killed almost immediately. On, in December 2015, a grand jury declined to bring criminal charges against the two officers, claiming the video of the shooting was of too low quality for them to see what exactly took place, which is bullshit because it's clearly that they jumped out of the motherfucking car with their guns and shot him within seconds. Now, Rice was black and the police officer who shot him was white. And the family says that is the reason the Trump administration shut it down. And I'm in agreement with that 100 percent. That's why they did, because as far as Trump is concerned and a lot of Americans today, black lives do not matter. Now, Rice's mother said, quote, I'm still in so much pain because no one has been held accountable for the criminal act that took my son's life. And um, 
she is putting pressure on Attorney General Merrick Garland and the Biden administration to begin publicly delivering on a commitment to combat racial discrimination in policing. And she asked, will they? So as far as I'm concerned, we're also still waiting for justice in many other killings, including Breonna Taylor. But I seriously doubt that we'll ever, ever see it happen. It's uh, There's a lot of rhetoric that's going on. And we saw uh, Derek Chauvin convicted and sent to prison. Uh, but I think that that is going to be an outlier rather than uh, the norm. All right, uh, let's get to the next story. And this is just kind of a silly story. It, came, it comes from Patheos, and uh, I am skeptical that this is true, but it was presented as the truth, so I'll go ahead and present it that way myself. Um, again, as I had said earlier about not uh, pushing on misinformation, um, uh, I don't want to do that, but in this particular case, it's just, um, it's non-consequential anyway. So Ellenwood, Kansas is a small town of about 342 people in the center of Kansas with only one traffic light, which is a blinking yellow. And Zach's general store has been run by the Kennard family for generations. And on Sundays, you can buy a loaf of bread and chat with the mayor, Andy Butterbean Kennard. The talk of the town these days is how the Reverend Alan Tucker from the First Baptist, Baptist Church tried to steal Mrs. Mazavi's motorized wheelchair last week and how no one is surprised by that fact. Mrs. Mazavi taught English for 35 years at Crusader Regional High School. Among her many accolades was, well, teaching English at a small underfunded regional high school for so long without having her spirit broken. What did break, however, was her hip when she was 83. After that, the town chipped in to buy her an authentic, refurbished Rascal mobility scooter. Even though Rascal went belly up in 2013, many of its classic machines are still going strong. Reverend Alan Tucker, who claims to be a distant cousin of Fox News personality Tucker Carlson, uh, which, who gives a fuck, uh, not so secretly coveted his neighbor's cherry red three-wheel device. His fixation first manifested in strange sermons titled, quote, Rascal Scooters are evil, end quote, and rascals, uh, and quote, rascals choose to be rascals and don't let them in public restrooms, end quote. Mayor Andy Kennard summed up what most people in town thought. No one talks that much about them things without wanting it bad. So Reverend Tucker broke into Mrs. Mazavi's bungalow in the wee hours of the morning. Thankfully, our German shepherd Butch tackled the would-be thief as he was riding the rascal out the front door. The police report noted that he could have gotten away with the crime if he didn't make all the ruckus by honking the horn repeatedly. That dog pinned him and I arrested the preacher as soon as I arrived on the scene, said Mary Mayor Andy Kennard, uh, who happens to also be the sheriff. So Reverend Tucker is awaiting trial. Many in the small town hopes that the judge throws the book at him uh, as long as that book isn't the Bible. So again, I don't know if this is a true story, but uh, certainly wouldn't put it past some fucking idiot preacher to do some stupid nonsense like that. All right, let's go to the next story, which is an update of the coronavirus statistics for the U.S., 
So coronavirus coronavirus cases are um, 33,378,000. A total number of deaths are 594,000, which is still 2% of the cases with an outcome. So even though the total number of cases and the total number of deaths have been going down, they are still at 2% uh, of the total cases with an outcome at this time. Um, as of um, uh, a few days ago, the total number of deaths per day was at 860. So um, one of the things that um, is, is happening now is that many um, states and cities uh, have announced that they are rescinding all COVID-related precautions and allowing public places to operate at full capacity. My own personal anecdotal evidence uh, indicates that many people now think there is no danger. I hear people like Joe Scarborough talking about following the science, uh, which in his case is saying that you don't need to wear a mask outside and saying shit like kids need to be in school. Uh, But they're not talking about the fact that the incremental number of people that will die if we fully open up is not zero. So my response to them is, is it okay if the person that dies is one of your loved ones? Because they seem to be saying that we should open up, we should send all the kids back to school, even though we know that by doing that, there will be a a number again greater than zero of children dying because of it. But Joe Scarborough doesn't give a fuck. He thinks they need to be in school whether they're going to die or not. So send his uh, uh, nieces, nephews, or great nieces, nephews, or whatever, kids, or whatever, uh, grandkids, send those motherfuckers to school and let them not wear a mask and let them catch COVID-19 and die. All right. Um, as I always do, I like to make this a, a, a little real by mentioning an actual person. So, This week, it's Sheila Smith, who was raised in rural Alabama and had an irresistible ebullience. She never met a stranger, her daughter, um, uh, Shankisa Smith said. Friends, fellow educators, and students embraced her with um, comments like uh, she lai and she fi and gee mama. She was a fixture of more than two two decades at the uh, Strom Elementary School in Adelusa in uh, Covington County, not far from the state's uh, southern border with Florida. Her job title was instructional aide or paraprofessional, but that belied her everyday impact and legacy, colleagues said. Sheila was special in so many ways, witty, energetic, fun-loving, personable, faithful, loyal, loud, fashionable, entertaining, and enthusiastic. And Betty Ann Older, the school's principal, said in an email. She said, quote, she loved big. Sheila loved our students, our community, her family, and her church, Alabama football, and local sports teams. Ms. Older uh, added, uh, the special needs students that she uh, worked with always felt special because of her, and she cared deeply for them. Mrs. Smith was vaccinated against the coronavirus on February the 4th while she regularly wore a mask and frequently used hand sanitizer. She had already been showing symptoms of the disease and she tested positive the next day. So let me be clear about what this is saying before some ignorant motherfuckers are going to say that she got uh, COVID from 
the vaccination. Uh, she was already showing symptoms of the of COVID-19 before she got vaccination and she tested positive the next day. She was admitted to a hospital on February the 10th and two days later she was transferred to a mobile infirmary, infirmary where she died of complications of COVID-19 on March 26, her daughter said, and she was only 61 years old. So again, COVID-19 is taking real people, uh, real people that had an impact on the community and, they, and a positive impact on the lives of many. All right, um, let's get to the last uh, story. So this last story is about a, the, the, a finding this week that um, uh, police uh, were able to find a cult leader's mummified body wrapped in Christmas lights in a Colorado home. So police have arrested um, seven alleged cult members after a mummified body of their spiritual leader was found wrapped in Christmas lights and displayed inside a home in rural Colorado. The body belonged to Amy Carlson, 45, the self-proclaimed, quote, Mother God, end quote, and the leader of the Love Has Won sect, according to the uh, Sangachi County Sheriff's Office. Authorities say they receive many complaints that the group is brainwashing people and stealing their money over the years based on the claim that Carlson was a living incarnation of God. Carlson's remains were found wrapped in a sleeping bag and decorated with lights in a house in Moffat, Colorado on April 28th, according to the arrest affidavits filed by the Sangachi County Sheriff's Office. The mummified, rema mummified remains appeared to be set up in some type of shrine and had glitter-type makeup around the eyes. Now, another article that I had read on this uh, said that the eyes were missing, uh, but that the, there was glitter and makeup around where the eyes used to be. A resident of the house reported the body to police earlier in that day amid concerns that they were holding his two-year-old son. According to the arrest affidavit, he, he told the police that the group had shown up at his home a day earlier in need of a place to stay after traveling there from California. He says he had a body, they had a body with them that was clearly dead based on the missing eyes and protruding teeth. Police later showed up at the home, uh, with a search warrant and found the body inside. They also found several suspects and two children aged 13 inside that age two and 13 inside the home uh, as well. And Jason Castillo, 45, John Robertson, 32, Abdella Franco, 52, Ryan Kramer, 30, are charged with tampering of a deceased human remains and child abuse. Uh, Christopher Royer, uh, Royer and Sarah Rudolph, both 35, face charges of abuse of a corpse and child abuse. And Karen Raymond, 47, is charged with abuse of a corpse, child abuse, and false imprisonment. They were due to appear in court on Wednesday, but uh, uh, we'll see if that happens. The young boy was returned to his father, and the 13-year-old girl, who is Raymond's daughter, was taken into, into custody by social services. The cause of Carlson's death was not immediately clear, but the county coroner says it appears that she had been dead for some time based on the state of the body. And our top, uh, autopsy is still pending. Carlson's followers who knew her as Leah believed her to be a divine being capable of healing the sick and bringing peace on earth. 
He also believed that she had lived hundreds of lives as both a man and a woman, and that she was Joan of Arc, Jesus Christ, and Marilyn Monroe in past lives. She had said, quote, I am God, I am Mother Gia, Mother Earth, uh, in a video segment that aired on the show uh, Dr. Phil last year. So, yeah, right, this fucking idiot was on Dr. Phil's show. Why anybody would watch Dr. Phil, I have no idea. She said, uh, this uh, now dead woman said, quote, I produce miracles kind of like Jesus, end quote. So uh, the the documentary uh, of her also describes how uh, Carlson uh, quit her fast food job, uh, left her family and struck out to found the group in the mid 2000s. Several of Carlson's family members and former cult members have spoken out since news of her death first emerged. Many have said that she was a bright person with a drinking problem and deteriorating health. One of them said, quote, I was not surprised at her passing, end quote. And then um, uh, another individual um, who was, quote, Father God in the group at some point uh, had said she was not in very good health and getting worse. Of course, everybody is calling this a cult, uh, but how is it really different from Christianity or Islam? Jesus performed miracles and Muhammad was a miracle, according to the Quran. It seems that everything is a cult unless it's what a particular individual believes. So everybody's uh, religion is real and they believe that everybody else's religion is a cult or bullshit or false. So... Uh, but yeah, here's a woman who worked at McDonald's, evidently, or something like that, quit her job and became God and had a bunch of people following her uh, until she died of a drinking problem. And what did they do? They put her in a in a, a sleeping bag, uh, wrapped some Christmas tree lights around her, uh, painted some glitter on her face and stuck her ass up in a shrine. Uh, so I guess she could keep doing what she does, healing the sick and raising the fucking dead, even though she couldn't do that for herself. So anyway, uh, my opinion is all religions are cults. So uh, bigger and lesser or uh, greater or lesser degrees, but they're all cults. And so you best get out of all of them before you find yourself praying to some uh, dead bitch in a sleeping bag with Christmas tree lap or lights wrapped around her. So that's it for the news. So we'll take a break. And when we come back, we'll get to the segment I call This Shit Is For Us. Welcome back. So this is the segment, uh, This Shit is for Us. And um, as I say every week, um, this is by me, a black man, and it is intended for my black brothers and sisters. That doesn't mean that if you're not black, it's time for you to turn it off and or skip through to the end uh, and, and start in the next uh, segment, the closing, or, or in this case, a Bible study with Atheist Mike. What it does mean, though, is that there may be some nuances of this story that you just don't get or this segment that you just don't get because it is a black thing. So what I want to talk about in this segment of This Shit Is For Us is um, a civil war. 
and, and more specifically race war and whether or not um, that is something that we're getting close to. Uh, and, and you'll see here shortly when I start to go through the information, uh, I believe we are already in the second civil war and uh, the first civil war was related to race and so is the second one. So a book that I have quoted from many times on this podcast uh, is The Sankofa Movement, Reafricanization and the Reality of War. And I'm going to start the discussion of this week's segment of This Shit is for Us by quoting it again. In the introduction to Arthur State, quote, to recognize and discard the worldview and paradigm of the non-African is the first substantive step in, pro in the process of liberation. The lineal-segregative, Eurocentric, historiog historiography, Judeo-Christian, Islamic, and other imperialist, ideo-religious constructs, quasi-spirituality, materialist, and competitive, hyper-rational, Catholicatha are pillars of cultures, civilizations, and worldviews that are hostile and adversarial to the African. And Catholicatha is just um, a Swahili, Swahili term uh, that means and so on and so on. Uh, so, in other words, uh, Kwame Agi and uh, Koakota are saying that our first step in the in this war. Uh, and in the war for our liberation is to understand the many corrosive bonds which our enemies snare us and to discard those bonds no matter how comfortable they may make us feel. So also in chapter 8 of the same book, the Arthur State, we are a people at war. We are engaged in an adversarial encounter, encounter of irreconcilable realities of cosmological proportions. The war of which there have been several millennia of skirmishes, puts an uncompromisable and re-emergent Af African reality against a remote, derivative, and deviant European reality. So though the war uh, uh, that we are in may devolve from time to time into mundane battles, what we are really fighting against is an ideological worldview that dichotomizes reality into good, bad, black, white, and which seeks to maintain a subversive, distorted view of reality to keep people of color on the bottom of the power hierarchy. We must be conscious about this battle and keep uh, uh, our eye on the goal, which is total liberation, total freedom to be ourselves and not to get sidetracked into thinking uh, that winning, like a minor skirmish like uh, the Chauvin conviction, is the same as winning the war. So let's move on to an article written in February of this year that I think provides some uh, information or input into this discussion. And uh, the article uh, states that the second American Civil War is here. Uh, no official uh, announced Trump civil war. That's why our major news organizations dance around the awful truth using confusing language. But we don't need a press release to recognize Trump directed the white supremacist followers to attack a branch of our national government on January the 6th. The treasonous assault on Congress capped years of also undermining the, the judiciary and the executive branch's intelligence, law enforcement, and health agencies. We also need to recognize we face danger beyond the lawless Trump mob. We now know that the insurgents attacking our capital included rogue active duty military and police officers, dozens of people on FBI terrorist watch lists, 
were among the attackers, evidently not being watched at all that closely. There are disturbing indications some members of Congress, Republicans all, may have helped the attackers uh, to survey the Capitol, pointing out hidden offices of Democratic Party leaders. One Republican lawmaker openly encouraged rebellion. Uh, Representative Mo Brooks of Alabama, outfitted in camo, riled up the Trumpian mob before its attack. Another Republican, Lauren Boebert of Colorado, tweeted out the location of Pelosi, who was then being hunted by the mob. A Boebert text described a plan to put a bullet in Pelosi's head on TV. Think about what America would be like today had the insurgents assassinated leaders by firing squad or hanging them from the gallows that they set up outside the Capitol. Brooks and Boebert must be expelled from the House. Failure to do this will only give sucker to others uh, tempted by traitorous opportunity. Now, of course, that's what this article says, that they should be expelled, but they will not. Instead, who's going to get expelled is Liz Cheney, who is saying that Trump is complicit in the attack on the Capitol. So what the Republicans are already showing by their actions is that they support the insurgents and that they believe that the people who uh, should be should should be uh, uh, battled uh, or in fact other members of the House, other members of the Senate, the Democratic Party, and any of the black voters that put any of the Democrats in power and any other people of color that voted for uh, anyone other than Trump. And and quite frankly, um, even any of the white people that uh, voted for anyone other than Trump. So the Republicans are doubling down, um, as I had said before, on their allegiance to a racist uh, insurrectionist, and that's where they're going. Now, the article goes on to say that Democratic lawmakers who reported they are Democratic lawmakers reported seeing pre-siege extremist Republicans giving guided tours to insurgent leaders, and they are worried that the riot had even further traitorous inside help. Um, the article says coming investigations will tell us the facts, especially if prosecutors are smart about leveraging cooperation in return for less severe sentences. But in my view, we're not going to find out anything. It appears that most of the people being charged are only being charged with low-level crimes, and there is no evidence that any member of com- uh, members of Congress are being investigated for supporting the terrorists. Now, Trump's civil war did not begin, the article says, with the murderous attack on our Capitol. Capitol, it dates um, uh, to at least August 2017, when his violent thugs marched in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, shouting Nazi slogans like, quote, Jews will not replace us, end quote, and blood and soil, which is a Nazi term uh, as well, as they marched past the synagogue. The next day, one of them drove his car into a crowd, killing Heather Heyer, the first fatality in Trump's civil war. So uh, what these rebels heard the next day after that um, uh, killing uh, and what instilled them with bravado was not Trump's confusing comparison of anti-Semitic racists with the counter demonstrators, but his line about themselves being, quote, very fine people, end quote. And that another, um, and, and, and that's another important thing to remember. The Civil War, just like the last one, is mostly about a, 
a white supremacist ideology. It's about racism and maintaining white privilege by any means necessary. Those of us who are black and marching with the traitors on the other side are double traitors. You're a traitor to the country and you're a traitor to your race. And I'm specifically speaking to all of you fucking Republicans, black Republicans. You are traitors, not only to your country, but you are traitors to your race, uh, especially if you participated in any of the big lie propaganda and even more so, especially if you participated, which some did, some of them were black in the January 6th riot. So the article goes on to say, don't make the mistake of thinking there is no civil war just because uh, all is peaceful where you are. Six days before the rebels bombarded Fort Sumter on April the 12th, 1861, the New York Times reported that an attack was imminent. But once the fighting began, there was no battle of Grand Rapids, no skirmish in Rochester, no siege in Cincinnati. In some states, like Oregon, all regular army were withdrawn and volunteers maintained military outposts and kept watch on the Confederate uh, Confederate sympathizers. That is how wars take place. People may be sipping espresso on sidewalk cafes or picnicking beside a stream while soldiers fire on one another within earshot. And we, and I'm saying this black America, we cannot be naive. We cannot sit by and think that because everything is fine with us, that there is no danger. Every black person was in danger during the first civil war, regardless of their status of servitude. And we will all be in danger during this second civil war, regardless of education or social economic status. Now, I next want to review a chapter, uh, just chapter one of a book, uh, The Coming Race War in America by Carl Rowan. It's a bit dated, but I think it is still very relevant. Rowan says, how do you tell when a great civilization is in decline? When a great nation is on the rock spiritually, morally, racially, and economically. I look closely at my country and everywhere I see signs of decadence, decay, and self-destruction. Respect for law and order has declined drastically, except in the phony speeches of politicians. The nation's capital is awash in special counsel and special prosecutors taking testimony from president, the first lady, key members of the cabinet and Congress, all accused or suspected of criminal wrongdoing. The FBI is far short of being trustworthy as agents and former agents deep in partisan politics. Local police departments reek with corruption including condoned lawlessness by some policemen. Our prisons bulge with record numbers of young Americans, mostly the fruit flies of the drug trade, while the big bumblebees of the crime and drug syndicates peddle their wares with impunity. Now, of course, uh, Carl Rowan was talking about um, uh, what was going on in, in the 90s, but the same shit is, is happening today. Now, um, every, it goes on every day. Our new newscasts begin with stories of grisly murders, sexual assaults, grotesque abuses of children, mass killings on job sites and worse. And how many mass shootings have we heard in just the, the last few weeks? He goes on to say America is sinking in greed. Our workers fear tomorrow and their bosses grab what they can today. A corporate fat cat can get a $10 million reward for downsizing his firm that is putting thousands of employees out of work. Public morality has probably never been lower. Lawmakers writhe and raggle on how to deal with television programming that spews out sexual rot and gratuitous violence morning, afternoon, and night. 
primetime he calls them primetime sewers. Congress makes believe that a meaningless rating system with a V chip will solve the problem. He goes on to say racism has not been as virulent throughout America since the Civil War with short fuses burning on a thousand powder kegs. We have seen our greatest law enforcement agency, the FBI, sit for weeks in a stalemate with a small Montana cult, the Freeman, whose leaders preached that the descendants of Northern Europeans are God's chosen people, that Jews are the children of Satan, and that African Americans and other people of color are by nature dumb and immoral. So I, again, I think it's, I think it's good to go back and, and review what he's talking about here. So, uh, again, back at that time, there was this, this group of people that took over uh, basically a bird stand in a national park and said they weren't going to leave. Uh, it, it, and they were all armed. It, uh, they, they were on, uh, government property, refused to leave. The government was extremely patient with them. Uh, and uh, eventually they went to arrest them. Uh, they ended up arresting, uh, they ended up arresting the group. One person was killed, uh, but um, the the individuals were really treated with kid gloves as compared to how, uh, like we talked about just in this podcast, a 12-year-old with a toy gun was treated. So Carl goes on to say, we see the free men and other hate groups like the Aryan Nation, the skinheads, the Ku Klux Klan, and assorted militias piling up arms for what they say is a coming race war in America that will precede the return of Christ. So they're, they're tying their, their war against people of color, uh, with the glorious return of Christ, uh, which will be on their side. These are the adherents of a Christian identity movement whose followers refuse to pay governmental levies, but collect taxes themselves. They rake in millions through extortion, the widespread use of bogus checks and phony credit cards and simple extortion. But law, local law enforcement uh, enforcers, even the FBI, are afraid to tangle with them. Wary since their disastrous confrontations with the David Koresh cult in Waco, Texas, and Randy, Randy Weaver Group in Ruby Ridge in Idaho. Officials, uh, official open coddling of these uh, groups pretty much ensures that the race war these white supremacists predict will really come. And he goes on to say, I know that these, har are, these harsh judgments about America as it nears the turn of the century are not what most Americans want to hear. In the wake of the fall of the evil empire that was the old Soviet Union, with the still limited development of China and the third world and the starkly limited hegemony of the European and other first world nations, Americans prefer to boast that the United States, States is still the greatest, uh, one of the greatest powers or last of the greatest powers. As proof, we cite our nuclear arsenals and the fact that we have only quick strike, the only quick strike forces capable of moving into Bosnia, Africa and the Middle East to wage war. Uh, within hours of a White House go-ahead to strike. We like to boast of our economic might, even though we've seen a frightful decline in good, high-paying jobs. We like to think that we are the world's cultural giant um, because, our motive, because of our movies and our music um, and our top television shows, which are coveted the world over. This is much to the dismay of foreign leaders who think that the cultural fair that we export uh, carries the seeds of national destruction. So much of what Americans boast about nowadays is superficial, even delusionary. Look at uh, below the surface. 
and he says he has done so and concluded that this country for which he fought in war and peace is in precipitous decline. The leaders of Rome, Greece, and the Third Reich, the British Empire, never saw the onset of the decadence and internal rot in time. He says, we can, we must, if the United States is not not to succumb to its internal hatreds and moral excesses to be consumed by its own self-destruction. Well, um, as far as I'm concerned, it's too late for that. Uh, what uh, what I see is that we're well, well down the path uh, of that. And so, uh, and as I had talked about uh, last week um, in the in the segment, what's on my mind about how it all ends, uh, all of the uh, the past uh, contributors to um, a, uh, a, a a dramatic decline of civilization is uh, showing itself um, in the world today. So. Um, we are we are in a lot of trouble. So, uh, as as far as uh, as far as I can see, um, we are dealing with uh, the inevitable. Um, I, I don't think that you can you can see it any other way. Uh, we are we are uh, fast, quickly, and fastly moving to uh, the the point in time where. These individuals and these groups, white supremacists, racists, um, that have been coddled for so long, who believe that they're on the side of right, uh, when they will uh, institute the war that they, uh, the race war that they have said has been coming. And Mr. Rowan says that the race war is coming. Um, uh, I'm saying that it's already here and we're all part of it. And since it's already here and we're all part of it, the only question is what side are you on? All right, that's it for uh, this week's segment of This Shit is for Us. And we'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll go through Bible study with Atheist Mike. Welcome back. All right. So um, this week, um, and actually this month's segment of Bible study with Atheist Mike, um, is not a Bible study at all, though I will review some scriptures. Um, This is an outline of a book that I'm planning to write, and the book is going to be called The Religious Significance of Hats. It's a review of an irrational and nonsensical attachment that many religious groups have to clothing, including hats, and an attempt to try to understand what makes them think that even if there were an omnipotent, omniscient being, that that being would give a fuck what clothes they were wearing. So I will start with the Bible uh, for this segment, and uh, this is based on my upbringing. As I mentioned in previous episodes, I grew up as an apostolic Pentecostal, and I could go through to explain to you what that means, uh, because there are um, Pentecostals that are not apostolic, though all uh, apostolics are Pentecostal. Or, wait, no, it's the other way around. There are, there are Pentecostals that are apostolic, but not all apostolics are Pentecostal. And, but anyway, when I was in church, it was a sin for a woman to wear pants. And you might ask why. Why was it a sin for a woman, a woman to wear pants? 
Well, as best as I could tell uh, back then, it was based upon the scriptures that were preached, that were, I heard, preached against the ungodly act of a woman in, a woman in pants. And that was a scripture that says, the woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are an abomination unto thy Lord, or unto the Lord thy God. End quote. And that's Deuteronomy uh, chapter 22, verse 5. Now, it should be immediately apparent that this cannot have anything to do with pants. Why? Because there were no pants. Uh, in fact, the Bible constantly talks about men wearing skirts. Uh, so what kind of dress was this referring to? Well, I found uh, the following information regarding the dress of men and women in, in biblical times. And this is talking about uh, the woman's garment. It says, while a woman's garments mostly corresponded to those of men, uh, that is, they were pretty much the exact same thing, uh, they also evidently differed in some ways uh, from those of men. Uh, women's garments were probably, and they say probably because they don't really know, but for the most part, men and women were essentially the same thing. But women's garments, they say, were was prob were probably longer uh, than like the the outer clothing that the men wore, uh, and um, they say that they probably had sleeves. Presumably, they were brighter colors and more ornamented, and so may have been of finer material. Um, so, uh, according to this uh, research, uh, men and women essentially wore the same style of clothing. The only difference was how it was decorated, uh, some slight differences in the length, uh, and whether or not it had sleeves. So, um, it, it seems clear that if a woman then, even back when I was in the church, if a woman was wearing uh uh, pants that were specifically designed for a woman that would not be violating this Bible verse of uh, a woman shouldn't wear that which pertains to a man. And neither, quite frankly, uh, I mean, after all, there are the, the uh, Scots wear kilts, which are essentially skirts. And uh, I'm assuming that back then they would have said that all Scots were going to hell because they were wearing that which pertained to a woman because the, these idiots' minds the uh, the men should not wear skirts, even though that's, again, what all of the men in the Bible times wore, uh, and that women shouldn't wear pants. So next up, let's talk about the Orthodox Jews, because they have a bunch of shit they have to wear. Uh, let's first start with their side curls. So this isn't necessarily dress or hats, but they have, if you've seen pictures of them, uh, of Orthodox Jews, they have these long curls uh, coming out of their hats, which we'll get to their hats in a second. But the, the side curls are called pales. Uh, here is an explanation. Uh, the Jewish rule is that a man must not cut or trim his hair within a, 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 a special facial region. The boundaries of this prohibited zone are on each side of the face, roughly between the middle of the ear and the eye, below a bone which runs horizontally across there. Many Orthodox Jews simply do not trim their sideburns above this line. Other Jews, uh, primarily Hasidic, go further with this tradition. They do not trim or cut their hair here at all. Rather, they allow it to grow indefinitely. The result is, a long, is, uh, is long side curls that visibly extend downward. 
Now to their hats. Orthodox Jewish men are known for wearing hats or head coverings. There are several different headwear items which they must use. The most basic is called a yarmulke or a kippah. A Hasidic yarmulke is usually made of velvet and covers the head only partially. An observant Jewish man will also have this on his head. Uh, this is an essential rule, and the purpose is to remind himself constantly that God is above him in heaven. With any other, uh, uh, that of the ultra-Orthodox man uh, wears, he will still be wearing a yarmulke underneath it. So any other hat that he wears, he also has a yarmulke. So the, the Orthodox Jews have at least two hats and the long curls. So they have the long curls, they have a yarmulke, and then under or on top of that, they also wear frequently wear hats. There's a variety uh, of them, um, but they're almost always black. The hat is a European Jewish tradition to wear while praying, and many men will go further and wear it all the time. The basic hat worn on weekdays commonly resembles a fedora or bowler hat. On Saturday and holiday festivals, a fancier hat is worn and is made of velvet or fur. This grand hat is known as a, well, I can't pronounce this, this Yiddish word, but it almost looks like uh, shritmil, which uh, shitmil would probably be a better analogy. Uh, so in Yiddish, a young man begins to wear a, sh- a shritmil upon marriage. Some fur shritmils can cost a thousand dollars or more. So the Hasidic Jews usually um, at least have two hats. So let's talk about their body garments. For the men, the ultra-Orthodox men and boys typically have on full their full bodies covered, even though modesty rules, their the rules are even stricter for women. Clothing is mainly black with some white color as well. The basis for the clothing customs is the following. It was considered formal or respectable attire in Eastern Europe back when Hasidic Jews lived there in the 1700s, 1800s, and early 1900s. So why the fuck is it that what they wore back then is now considered to be what they need to wear now? It's like, let's grow up, motherfucker. Read a book, goddammit. And commonly, a man will wear some or all of the following, a long jacket or frock coat, uh, a special four-cornered white or yellow garment called a, a, a zitzi. There might be a white strings hanging down from there, a, form, a white formal button-up shirt, socks pulled up to the calves. Sometimes they are white, so white socks with black shoes and pants, a white yellow prayer shawl wrapped around the back and or head. Uh, if a man is wearing this shawl, then it is probably en route to prayer or uh, to modic study. If this is the case, he might also be carrying a soft square plastic case, which contains his prayer, um, some other Hasidic word. So the Zutzi mentioned above is another case where people go beyond the actual requirement because the original rule only applies to a garment that has four corners. Such a garment must have a special string uh, fringes tied to each corner, and the strings are usually of white color. The garment, which does, does not have uh, distinct uh, four corners, uh, does not need to have any of the string tied to it. Therefore, if none of your clothing has four corners, then you don't need to follow this rule. However, most ultra-Orthodox men desperately wear, or deliberately, they say, I think is desperate, wear a special designated four-corner garment, which was made solely for this purpose. 
The garment is worn underneath their shirt or jacket, and the strings are untucked in order to hang out and be openly visible. Um, and again, the reason for this is so the wearer will be reminded of God wherever he sees the strings. So it, you need fucking string to be reminded of what you claim is an omnipotent being that controls life and death and is going to be the uh, what's going to make you live forever at some point. Because even as the Jews, they still believe that the Messiah is coming. They don't believe it was Jesus. Uh, they say, fuck him, but they still believe they're going to get a Messiah and that God is going to um, come back and support them. All right, there's a bunch more shit that the Hasidic Jews have to wear, but uh, let's save that for the book because we're already getting uh, long on time. So let's look at the Amish. So the Amish men uh, wear their hair in a simple, unassuming style, uh, most often a bowl cut. In some uh, uh, more conservative orders, um, uh, the Amish, the hair is notched at the ear and longer in the back. In general, the longer uh, the man's hair, the more conservative his group. So uh, um, just like the Jews, they have fucking long hair, but unlike the Christians who say that a man's hair is supposed to be short. So the stricter and more conservative the group, the more uh, the people's lives are regimented. Uh, and um, this means even trivial matters such as hair length serve the purpose of keeping a particular community united, uh, which is a vital part of Amish culture, um, I guess. Uh, so anyway, that's their the way they wear their hair. So beards, uh, getting away from hats and their heads for the moment, are generally not trimmed, except in some of the new uh, order groups. Men belonging to more conservative orders would most likely never trim their beard. In Ohio, Amish men let their beards grow after they join the church uh, and when they are baptized. This coincides with or slightly precedes marriage. In other states, the timing for beards differ. Many people wonder why Amish men do not have mustaches. Practically, the absence of a mustache aids in cleanliness, though I don't fucking see how, although this is probably not the reason for the practice. It is thought to have originated from an effort by Amish men to distinguish themselves from European soldiers, most of whom had a curled mustache. Although Amish men wear a few different types of hats, the differences in style are much uh, smaller than um, the uh, head coverings for their women. In Ohio, Ohio Amish men uh, wear hats most of, most of the time. A hat would never be worn in church, and most of the time they would remove it when going indoors as well. Inside doorways and public places like hospitals, one will often see a rack hanging with varying sizes of yellow straw hats, whose owners are most likely visiting an Amish patient. Little boys are seen uh, without hats outdoors more often than men, but boys wear the same type of hats as their fathers. So in, in summer, a straw hat is worn for working outside. Depending on the order or group, the hat may be flat-topped or crowned and may be rounded. In some moderate or less conservative groups, the men wear a straw fedora-like hat. So the, all of these religions seem to love fedoras. So the Hasidic Jews like fedoras and the Amish like fedoras as well, though they, theirs are straw. The church and the formal for church and formal uh, occasions, Amish men wear black felt hats that look a lot like the hats that the Jews wear. So, um, 
I could talk on and on about the Amish or Mennonite women's dress code, but again, like I said, this is already getting too long, so let's move on. So let's now go to the Catholics and the Pope. So the papal mitre, which is the hat that the Pope wears, is one of the most instantly recognizable pieces of the Pope's wardrobe. It is a ceremonial headdress that only the Pope, as well as cardinals and bishops, are authorized to wear. It is also amongst the most regal of the Pope's accoutrements, standing tall uh, and often ornately decorated. It is a folding, folding cap that consists of two identical parts, stiffened by a lining and raising to a point. Some say this resembles a fish with an open mouth. Uh, it is almost always white and trimmed with gold. This uh, piece of papal clothing is documented as first having appeared in Rome around the middle of the 10th century, and uh, this early form looked more like a crown uh, than a peaked cap. The mitre is a symbol of authority, and his legacy is said to stretch back all the way to St. Peter, who was considered the first pope who was depicted on Roman coinage as wearing one. Indeed, its height, ostentatiousness, and unique form make it sort of a Christian crown for the leader of the Catholic Church. Now, the Pope also has an everyday hat, uh, and that's called a zucchetto. Uh, this piece of the Pope's clothing is small, round skull cap. Looks almost like a yarmulke. So, again, I think that uh, uh, either the the Amish were, were stealing from the Hasidic Jews, and uh, the Jews were stealing from the Catholics, or the Catholics were stealing from the Jews, because all of them have similar types of hats. Uh, and these hats are extremely important, evidently, for God, because God doesn't like it when motherfuckers go out without their hats. So, um, going on uh, to uh, the, the the nuns. So, uh, I didn't realize this, but um, nuns and monks all, both wear habits. So I thought that it was only the nuns, but no monks. Uh, so the men and the and the women in the in these orders wear habits. So uh, the Council of Trent stated that though the habit does not make the monk, it is nevertheless needful that clerics always wear a dress suitable to their proper order. Although the habit is not the cause of being a monk, it is nonetheless, as Trent implies, uh, who wrote this, uh, for a monk, um, it is necessarily. He said it's necessary uh, for a monk to wear a habit because the habit does not help to make the monk who he is, uh, but um, he is uh, who he is because he wears the habit. So in, in my mind, I think that's fucking stupid, but so be it. Uh, it, it goes on to say that um, um, that... You know, it goes on to talk about uh, the the woman as well, uh, and it, it talks about that the 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 woman uh, wears a, a habit because it is it it shows how she should behave, and one of the things that um, it says that uh, that it, that uh, that you don't have to tell a nun that she shouldn't go out and climb a tree. Um, uh, because she's a nun, the fact that she has a habit on shows that. But personally, I think wearing heels would say the same thing. Because you can't fucking climb a tree with heels. So, what does uh, the uh, the habit have to do? 
All right, so let's uh, let's move on. So next, uh, we want to talk about um, the Mormons and uh, their magic panties. So there's a bunch of other groups that we could talk to, but I'm going to make this the last one. So we could talk about Arab women with their scarves and sheiks with their turbans. Uh, but I'm going to end with the Mormons and their magic panties. So the temple garment, also referred to as garments, the garment of the holy priesthood or Mormon underwear, is a type of underwear worn by adherents of the Latter-day Saint movement after they have taken part in the endowment ceremony. Garments are worn both day and night and are required for any adult who previously participated in the endowment ceremony to enter a temple. The undergarments are viewed as a symbolic reminder of the covenants made in temple ceremonies and are seen as a symbolic and or literal source of protection from the evils of the world. So they threw in the symbolic, but they they believe that it is literally protecting them from the evils of the world. And again, did you hear this? These these this underwear is worn day and night. It's never taken off. So um, hopefully they wash the motherfucker. But who, who knows? So the garment is given as part of the washing and anointing portion of the endowment. Today, the temple garment is worn primarily by members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the LDS Church, and by members of some of the Mormon fundamentalist churches. Adherents consider them to be sacred and not suitable for public display. Well, I think we all consider our underwear to be mostly sacred and not suitable for public display. Uh, except for those that are wearing sagging pants, they like to display their underwear all the time. Um, Anti-Mormon activists has occasionally uh, publicly displayed or defaced temple garments to advance their opposition to the LDS church. And the temple garments are sometimes derided as magic underwear by non-Mormons. But Mormons view this terminology to be both misleading and offensive, which is, of course, why I use that term. So, fuck you, Mormons, and your goddamn magic underwear. All right, that is it for this week and month segment of Bible Study with Atheist Mike. We'll take a a short break, and when we come back, we'll close the podcast. Welcome back. All right. And closing out um, this week's podcast, I want to uh, give a shout out to and uh, congratulations to um, identical twin sisters, identical black twin sisters who are graduating at the top of their class um, and have received more than $24 million in college scholarships and more than 200 offers from schools. Denisha and Destiny Caldwell, 18, are seniors at Scott, uh, Scott, uh, Scotland Vale Magnet High School in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, and they first said that they competed against each other, but now they compete with each other. They said, quote, in the end, we said, let's work together and end at the top, Denisha Caldwell told Good Morning America. It's an unbreakable bond. Once you see me, you know that you're going to see destiny. There's no separation between us, Destiny called well-told GMA. We are two hearts apart. 
Destiny in her school valedictor Destiny is her school's valedictorian with a GP uh, 4.0 GPA, and Denisha is the salutatorian with uh, achieving a 3.95 GP GPA. So two very bright young black women. The sisters were involved in competitive dance, the Stanford University Emergency Medicine Program, and they intern at the Arts Performance Academy. They also perform community service for the Butterfly Society, an organization that provides assistant, assistance to domestic um, uh, violence survivors. And um, for fun, Denisha enjoys writing, robotics, and solving puzzles, and Destiny enjoys math, community service, and, um, and dancing. Denisha and Destiny said their biggest supporters are their parents. Destiny's advice to rising students is, quote, the sky's the limit, end quote. And it, she said, quote, achieve everything you want to accomplish and accomplish everything you want to achieve. Denisha's advice is don't allow negativity to break you down. She said, quote, use it as a motivation. Use everything uh, as, as a positive, end quote. Denisha and Destiny will both attend UCLA in the fall, where they will major in math and science. Both said they want to eventually pursue careers in the medical field. So congratulations, both Denisha and Destiny. Uh, fantastic role models for our black youth. Uh, and glad to see that they are really um, uh, doing a great job. All right, that's it for the podcast this week. So I want to remind you that the intro music is Transcend by KIRK and the outro music is Ending by Micaiah Beats. This podcast is available on Apple Podcast. Again, now that uh, I got that corrected, it's also available on Google, Stitcher, Amazon, and other platforms. If it's not on the platform that you typically consume your podcast, just send me a message to feedback at rationalblackthought.com and I will make sure to get it set up. Uh, once there, why don't you subscribe so you don't miss an episode? And if it's available, leave me a five-star review. So again, this week I'm going to end uh, with the uh, poem from Claude McKay. Um, um, I don't think that I did it as much justice as I had hoped last week. Hopefully I do a better job this week, but um, more than likely next week I'm going to go back um, to the the old ending. But uh, this poem is titled again, If We Must Die. If we must die, let it not be like hogs, hunted and pinned in an inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock of our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us, though dead. O oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe, though far outnumbered, let us show us brave. And for their thousand blows deal one death blow. What though before us lies the open grave? Like men will face the murderous cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. All right, thanks for listening to the podcast. And until next time, keep fighting for our right to be black and beautiful.